Welcome to Escape from Plan A. This is Teen hosting this week, and I'm here with Jess. What is going on, Jess? How's, how are you doing? The sun finally came out in Los Angeles, so this is big news. Okay, so back to normal. Everything's fine. No more problems. <laughs> uh, for now. It's it's just surprisingly cool. Unseasonably cool. But I'll take it. I hear it's going to be really hot in the next couple of months. So you're good. Um, yeah, for the moment, yeah. Uh, and we got a guest, a uh, friend of mine who uh, I've I've hosted some Twitter spaces with, and I've really enjoyed talking with him on Twitter and in, and in real life. John Pang, how's it going, John? Hi, hi, Dean. There's that. Hi. There's that. Uh, there's that nice Malaysian accent, that learned accent. Love hearing don't, it. Don't know about learned, but it's Malaysian. <laughs> it's oh, you're, scholarly. You're, you're learned. It's very scholarly. <laughs> yeah, he's learned. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we, it, it's it was great to, catching up with visiting you. scholar and, and, John Pang. That we're, 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 he's he kindly graced us with his presence here on this pod today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. I, oh. I'm huge fans of, of of this pod. I don't want to embarrass oh. you, but you know, sometimes no, no, that's not embarrassing. You. you just keep saying, oh, you know, okay. oh, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this. It's going to be a good conversation, I think. Yeah, so, yeah, me too. Um, me too. Yeah. Okay, so uh, to set the scene, um, I think that. Uh, a couple weeks ago, it's probably out of the news cycle, but the Chinese clothing company Shine, S-H-E-I-N, um, which we were just talking about some of the, we can go into how, how quickly it's growing and sort of what market segment it's in. But uh, they were, you know, controversy has followed them around. Um, they sell what's called fast fashion, virtually disposable clothing. Think of them as like the Ikea of clothing, maybe even cheaper than that. And, um, you know, the clothes that they sell are extremely trendy. They sell a huge amount of clothes. They have a huge amount of market share. And, um, you know, and kind of in a first, I would think this is like a dominant Chinese brand, um, which we haven't seen in, uh, in, in America or in the West, really. You know, usually we see Chinese made products, but branded by, you know, either a European brand such as a, a, an H&M or a Zara or a Japanese brand like um, like a Uniqlo, uh, even though most of their clothing is made in China. And controversy has followed China around because their price point's even lower than these other competitors. And allegations of you know labor abuse uh, have been rampant. And in in reaction to that, if you recall, Shine had invited some you know popular online fashion influencers from like Instagram and TikTok. To come and visit a factory, I wouldn't say the factory, I'm sure they have many factories, to show that, in fact, uh, you know, the conditions are good, that the mach- you know, it's, it, they're, they're using high-tech machinery, and that's how they do it. And that invited a lot of blowback to say that this was, um, you know, a sort of a, a bit of propaganda, let's say, and they were employing uh, Western influencers to sort of, you know, shine a turd, and a lot of you know, there was a lot of blowback in the media. Mainstream media was calling this, you know, um, uh, you know, another another brand trying to gloss over its abusive labor practices, etc. So that got me thinking about, you know, just sort of like, and th- this is a wide open topic, right, guys? I've, 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 I haven't given like a specific outline of like, you know, exactly what I'm trying to say here, but just open it up in discussion because I think we're we're all interested in this, uh, in terms of. Um, you know, our attitudes towards labor 
and Asian labor in particular, because I think that's where we get a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of problems in in terms of how we talk about it, how we claim to care about it. But I think in the end, uh, a lot of it is concern trolling and just I think you called it you know a fig leaf to cover up what I think is a deep, deeply ingrained hostility to labor in the West, which is hidden and 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 obfuscated, but it is a hostility towards labor itself. And also, I think a good amount of racism that's been that 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 uh, finds its way into it. So, um, I mean, yeah, yeah uh, I mean, so you, yeah, you covered a you covered a huge amount of terrain there, and hopefully, you can pick apart some of the pieces that are of interest. But it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating story, actually. Um, so, I had just noted uh, with you guys prior just prior to this call, despite this company be, being um, one of the three. It's a hundred billion dollar company. It's considered the world's third largest company as of 2023, just after ByteDance wow. and SpaceX. Yes, it's a massive oh, company, and yet, despite its absolute its sheer size, no one has probably heard of this 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 company. Say two three years ago, and I wasn't even sure how to pronounce it. That's how that's how um, that's how dominant it is without actually being. Uh, without actually being above ground necessarily in in like the in the consumer's consciousness, like to the point where I don't even know how to pronounce its name properly. Like it was like Shine Shein, uh, who really knows? Uh, but the sheer size of it indicates something kind of interesting to me. Like who, um, it's it. I think it's actually a great business case study. This Shine did something that uh, MBAs said was impossible in America. Like literally impossible. Uh, I mean, entire br- entire uh, brands uh, have written playbooks on how to properly build a business, how to scale, how to market to the American consumer, how to target the consumer. And Shine basically undid the entire thing. It turns out the American consumer is fighting on the exact same terms as the Asian consumer, the African consumer, um, big portions of the European market, and it's simply price. So there's a there's a layer to this controversy. That's the uh, that's the polite uh, reservations and complaints that we are willing to express in public. And then there's our private behavior, which is to buy massive amounts of extremely cheap goods from this company, uh, presumably against our against our ingrained instincts, like what you're talking about, right? Like racism or the hostility to Asian labor, the devaluing of Asian labor and Asian made and and openly Asian made products, and all of that flew out the window to make this uh, to make to make this the world's third largest company, primarily uh, from the North American consumer. So there's a dual consciousness, I think, that's in in play here that I think is actually very interesting, and I haven't seen it mentioned in the, in the press very much, um, despite this being a very pivotal story in the in the present reality and the and the near future of the consumer marketplace in Amer- in North America, uh, primarily. I'm talking primarily the U.S., of course. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I th- yeah. yeah I, what do we know about Shine, John? Do you do you know? I mean, I actually don't know that much about this company other than, you know, I think that the that the sort of long arc history to me. Right. And I'll just tell you what I think of this controversy mm-hmm. is and people may accuse me of being defensive about Chinese companies where this is a company that doesn't deserve um, protection. But I'm not trying to protect Shun. I'm just trying to make. And I don't you know, I've only been to their website once and it gave me a headache. I mean, I just I got right off. I don't this is not. 
a company that I have any interest in as a consumer, right? But I would say that if you look at the clothing industry in the U.S., the, the retail clothing industry, I mean, China has been the workshop for almost like, you know, for for decades. We, we've gotten extremely used to products made in China and generally don't really have a problem with it. I know that, you know, this controversy has come up before when we, you know, when people had raised, uh, you know, some of the deindustrialization during deindustrialization that a lot of jobs were being moved to, to, to China and Asia and Nike had run into this problem, uh, this controversy before. But for the most part, I think it kind of died down. We hadn't seen it again, including through, you know, a, a lot of fast fashion and sort of near fast fashion, like some of the brands that I mentioned before. But then it blew up again in a spectacular way. And I think the reason is because we're okay with things being made in China. We're not okay with the brand being Chinese. And I think the reason is because if you look at the 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 profit margin, like who's making the bulk of the profit off of clothing retail, so far it really hasn't been in my in my estimate. I don't think it's the people who make the clothes. I think it's the people who market the clothes, right? It's the um, I forgot his name, but it's the it's the it's the Uniglo guy who is the founder, who is the richest man in Japan. The richest man in Japan is the Uni, is the Uniqlo founder, and he, they're selling the uh, you yeah. know bl- blazers for fifty dollars, mm-hmm. and they're good. I mean, I ha- I own Uniqlo stuff. They're really good. They're 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 pretty. They're not disposable clothes at all, yep. but and they're and they're selling for cheap. And I don't think anyone's really had a problem with the fact that eighty percent. I looked that up. Eighty percent of their clothes are made in China. And they have enough of a markup on that clothes that they can run a huge brick and mortar retail footprint, you know, employees in those stores, as well as advertising, as well as uh, enough markup that the owner is now, the founder is now the richest man in Japan. So I feel like that, the brand is the one that's really, you know, riding the coattails of, of, of Asian labor and Chinese labor here. Um, and so I don't know, it just, and the Chinese market is by far the the largest number of stores in, in, in in China. Yep. There you go. Um, and so I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a case where the, where the, you know, playing in a bit of a nationalistic sense that Chinese workers are allowed to put their wares out into the global market, but they can't sell it directly. They cannot brand it themselves. They can't take the lion's share of the profit. They can only be back-end white-label producers for Western and, in, you know, in some instances, Japanese brands. I'm, I'm curious who you are referring to when they say they can't, because the American consumer has has voted with their wallets, and the answer is resoundingly yes. If everyone had had this that had this as a deeply seated belief, Shine wouldn't have become the company that it is. So oh, it's it's kind of it's kind of a dual well. consciousness. Yeah, I mean it's kind of a yep. dual consciousness here. There's what we say we we care about, and there's what we actually care about. And I think perhaps a big a big part of the friction here is that it's exposing that double consciousness in a very uncomfortably visible way. I mean, if I oh, if no, I may if I may use, just, be so uh, crude, yeah, like, uh, it's shine, not just you, double consciousness. There is this uh, in, in the TikTok example. Pardon me for for interrupting. Oh, of uh, course. Not. This is sort of fascinating dimension here you know with tiktok you had a kind of political uh, and media elite sort of um you know talking it down and then you find out that there's 100 million americans uh who are really keen on it 
And these are regular people. And, and I think it's not just double consciousness. There's something, there's a sort of, a certain sort of uh, elite, a discourse elite. And then there's regular people who probably don't have this issue. Yes, exactly. If, if you know what, what I mean, yeah. there's that, there's that mm-hmm. division. There's, a, there's an intra-American um, division or an, it, there, there's, a, there's a societal um, uh, division here. Yes, absolutely. Sure. So, in a, in a sense, it, it their position in the like shine, especially um, yeah. to me. If I if I may if I may use uh, if I may be so crude, it's almost it, it almost occupies it's it the analogy the most apt analogy for me is that it's somewhat akin to like pornography before consumer driven capitalism. It's a very naked ex- exposure of what uh, of the the id of a consumer's actual desires here. Uh, I mean, if you look, I mean, well, one part that was interesting to me about the, uh, the, 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 the controversy really it was a tempest in a teacup. It didn't affect shine's bottom line. It affected nothing in their operations. It was barely, barely a ripple that the majority of people did not pay any attention to, or they, they saw the headlines on their way to placing another order with them. If you look at, and it was funny that so many people involved in the controversy actually had not, had not even looked at the the, the site, mm-hmm. um, and you know if you if so I invite anybody listening to this to actually look at this. If you have if you're not a customer already, and I know a lot of you are, or if you aren't, then you know someone close to you is, um, and that just take a look at what they offer. It is extremely clear what they are competing on. It is it is it is blazing. It is capitalism at its most naked form. It's kind of astonishing and impressive to see. Almost, you know, borrowing from TikTok's playbook. Uh, TikTok was not supposed to succeed. All I work in technology myself. I was told years ago that the social media market was essentially closed. All the big players had staked their claims. There was no more territory to, to compete on. Even with all the power of like American VC, uh, Silicon Valley behind you, that there, this is just not possible possible anymore and this little upstart from china of all places are you know um and they really slipped under the radar i think they they entered the u.s market just right before the 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 covid related wave of like anti-china policy really started bubbling up into the into into the mainstream consciousness they competed strictly on on uh, a, a laser a laser targeted algorithm um, and they are able to allocate tremendous amounts of uh, attention and now money. They are one of the biggest money movers in the American tech market marketplace, if not the biggest, um, to completely dominate the the environment here. So you know, um, so it's this is as far as a business, this is kind of a case study in just how competing on the things you're supposed to compete on yield tremendous rewards, backed by the sheer size. And capability of of China, which has been which has spent you know the last several decades building up this kind of human and this human techno human capital, social capital, economic capital to be able to make these kinds of big pushes now. Um, so when you're talking about uh, like what we know about Shine, Shine took off. Uh, I think the the precursor to Shine was uh, but a lot of the plethora of. Uh, Chinese companies that were selling on Amazon, 
kind of a, a direct to consumer under the Amazon umbrella. So Amazon takes a cut. A lot of Chinese uh, manufacturers set up a shop and then just sell their wares through that. And then that business model primed the American consumer for extremely low prices. Um, they actually primed the consumer on accepting, uh, you know, exchanging like a guarantee of quality for sheer price and volume and speed. Uh, with which they could receive their items. And then it was kind of inevitable. Like people, Some people were actually predicting this, that the Amazon, some company would break away from, you know, paying rents to Amazon to to completely dominate the Ameri- this, this segment of the American retail market. And lo and behold, that actually became true and it became true much quicker and faster than anyone had ever anticipated. Um, so I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but, you no, know... No, no, no. It, I, I think I'm intrigued by, by, sorry, go on. Well, I, I think what Jess is saying is that what what she's talking about, you know, the mm-hmm. idea that there would be um, one of these sort of no brand, you know, online retailers that's just selling cheap stuff through, you know, uh, you know, an Amazon or whatever. The forbidden thing, the, the idea of them breaking out and becoming their own retailer and brand is was forbidden, in the sense that. If that were to happen and they started becoming extremely successful, there would be a concerted effort to shut that down because that to me is take, you know, that is taking away the profit margins of what we would call American capitalism, which is, you know, the Asians make it, we sell it. And you're just the back room. You're, you know, it's like, a There's a huge story here, yeah, about yeah. The, the whole structure of the global economy uh, and something at stake right now. In, in this well, let me cor- a minor correction. Directionally, you are correct. I'll make a minor cor- uh, one minor correction to that is it. The common understanding was that it wouldn't, though. This is the interesting part to me. Uh, I mean, part of part of my my life as a tech consultant was actually helping uh, companies build the, their brand presences. It, it, you know, it was very very emphasized, especially a technology facing com- technology based company where where you're interfacing with the consumer through a very impersonal digital medium like a like a website. The it was very important to build that kind of brand trust and presence and kind of a personal a, a faux personalization of what you and your company stood for. This is why you know you see all these profiles of founders like people behind the scenes. Yep. You make you know a lot of emphasis on on friendly user experience and and you know user interfaces that are very polished and sophisticated as kind of an extension of a brand identity. So the assumption, the common assumption when we talked about you know somebody was people were predicting like they're like China is building up its capacity, its raw capacity so quickly that it's inevitable that somebody would try to break out like this. Right. And, you know, mind you, before in the in the in the say, you know, five, six years prior to to shine entering the market as its own for, you know, shine or TikTok or any of these other companies, you know, there were storefronts on Amazon, uh, you know, operating like like Shenzhen or Guangzhou or something that were doing, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year in revenue just from, you know, their Amazon storefronts. But the common understanding was that none of them would be able to break out because none of them would be able to build on that human, personalized, sophisticated brand identity that the American consumer, American and European consumer needs in order to be able to trust them with their money. Oh yeah, so this no, is, I totally this agree. I think, a, just, I think we just got used to the smell of our own farts when it came to that thing. You know, and, and it turns and, out, and, and, and no. the law of the marketplace still holds. And that's the thing that bothers us is that 
if they're given a fair shake, you know, if they have, and I think that the internet has collapsed access to that marketplace where, you know, Shine has as easy a time to reach the consumer directly as an Amazon does or any other retailer, um, that, you know, the promise of, you know, a fair, a fair competition online is anathema to the business, the high margin business model of U.S. retail. And I think this applies across the board where, you know, we're just we're just simply not comfortable with the people who make stuff being the people who also sell it. We are yeah. very comfortable yeah. with a, a global supply chain model or whatever you want to call it, but basically a, a form of global capitalism where certain people are lower on the food chain. They're the, they're the ones, and Asia, I think, exemplifies this. And I think Southeast Asia uh, is, is very much a part of this. Maybe, uh, John, I don't know if you have any special insight there as to, as to how that works in Southeast Asia, but some economies are just geared towards export. And that you know, and then the people of that country are meant to be workers and suppliers. They're givers into the supply chain, but they're not the takers. whole structure of the global economy and yes. uh, everything that was presumed about the way things work over the, the so-called neoliberal era, right, from the 1990s onwards. And uh, Malaysia, where I come from, and Southeast Asia, where I was active, um, sort of the embodiment of of of, of that. Um, assumption in terms of its um, development models. So you you did certain things. You start with uh, textiles, right? As as a lot of industrialization does. It's, it's very interesting because textile um, uh, is fundamental um, to, to to industrialization. And you were supposed to start on the low end and so on and and, and move all the way up. So you know, there, this discussion is really interesting on, on two levels, as Tina, as you've identified, there is this thing here in which they're taking over at um, the branding and retail and marketing side of it, and also the storefront. And this is the high value um, end stuff at the end that's supposed to be dominated, has always been dominated by Western uh, companies and, and a particular uh, you know, Japanese company. Right. So the rest of it, all that other, other work, uh, lower value stuff is supposed to be done elsewhere. Uh, it could be Bangladesh. It could be Vietnam right, or, or, or China. I wanted to get back at, at, at something, um, you know, um, just said, you know, and, and, and ask you more about this. You said it's like, like pornography. I'm curious. I want to say more. You know, I tried downloading this, right, and, and going, uh, going through it, and I have no interest in it because this stuff is, um, it's, it's tailored to, to obviously a kind of younger women. It's tailored to women and probably younger women. Um, but I want to get at the innovation in business model, not just technology, um, not just the algorithms, but in the, the entire sort of uh, business model. And um, I tend to look at it, I, I don't know Shine so well, but I know TikTok a little better. Uh, I've used Timu, uh, AliExpress out here, and there seem to be certain similarities between them, except that uh, unlike Timu and uh, Ali, uh, where the, the particular retailers come on to this sort of broad marketplace and just sell, uh, these guys are everything. I mean, this is like Uniqlo, but without the stores, the physical stores. They take that over as well. So the business model innovation is actually massive. You know, it is extremely threatening to traditional um, uh, 
sort of um, clothing uh, retailers. Yeah, it's but, actually but then very very niche, even... right? Cheap and fast. Is it just super fast? Do you mean it's pornography in that sense? There is this whole thing about fast fashion, right? Is this just fast fashion on steroids? It it is. It's a lot of it's a lot of things actually. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's it's actually a mistake to see them as primarily a clothing brand. Um, mm. A lot of their sales are actually in electronics, appliances, mm. home goods, uh, you know, cosmetics and, and things like mm. that. Things that wouldn't traditionally be uh, considered clothing. A huge mm-hmm. amount of volume. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm on the site right now. I just clicked electronics. Like, let me tell mm-hmm. you just exactly how hilariously wild this company is and just how much it flouted every single precept about brand building and business mm-hmm. model development in the country. Right. On their top page... So there's she in the, the main site. You click, you know, into one of their subcategories. You click into appliances. They don't even spell appliances correctly. Yep. There is a typo barely two clicks away from the top page, and it and this is a billion, a hundred billion dollar company, right? This is how I'm not, and this isn't. I'm not making fun of them. I'm saying that this is this. This is just how flagrantly yeah. they they have decided to just base. They probably hired a lot of very high paid consultants to develop their brand to, to be, develop a business model for deployment in the United States to t- cater to the American consumer, and they are ignoring everything. This is this is wild. I I, I haven't seen it analyzed <laughs> as such. It's wild but, and so it I'm, works, which is interesting. It's wild and it works. Yes, you're kind of saying that. You're kind of saying that they're not really that worried about you know crossing their t's and dotting their eyes they're just moving they're just moving (laughs) because you worry about that when you're trying to extract that surplus value right where you're talking about brand building right that gap between you know your your labor and your material inputs and the profit margin you can expect to skim you know your brand identity sits in that it's it's the personification of surplus value right it's how much the the premium the consumer will pay on top of the raw inputs shine is saying fuck you how would you like a set of speakers for three dollars right 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 the speaker it's not quite branding the 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 thing itself it's a storefront for these you know, millions of, of Chinese retailers uh, and, and hundreds of thousands of, of, of producers, factories, and so on, um, whose great Look, weakness... knockoffs. The one shortfall was they didn't have brand, they didn't have brand presence. Mm-hmm. Right? And they right now, it's, the it's hilarious. End, and this guy is just doing it. Yes. For all of them. Right now, there is a knockoff of the uh, the Apple Pro Max uh, headset, the, the, ear, the AirPods. For eighteen dollars, oh, I've seen I've seen Ooh, an unboxing okay. of some of those. See, they go there's there's ones that go for like yeah, like eighteen bucks, and mm-hmm. there's ones that go for a hundred bucks. Yeah, and, and this you is kind of get is what you pay for. for like, all of it. Yeah, this like is the hundred dollar ones beware. are not you know they're not real AirPods and they don't sound like real AirPods, but they're not shit either. And the you know you 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 know it's it's um you know what this reminds me of people. It <laughs> reminds me of when I was a kid when. Price Club, which is now Costco, when Costco first got running. And suddenly the idea was screw the nice mall storefront, screw the nice salespeople. Screw- We're just going to throw everything to a giant bin and, and just stack them on pallets. And you guys pick them. You guys pick at it. Like just go to the wholesale store, like, you know, like the retailers would. You just go. If this is wholesale direct to, com- to consumer, and it blew people's minds. At the time, but over time, it became a preferred way of shopping because 
you know, it's it turned out that a lot of consumers didn't need or didn't want to have this sort of like glossy retail barrier between them and the product. They just wanted to get to the product. And I'm looking at um, there's this guy. This guy, the, the whole Shine thing came to came to my attention because there there's a he's actually Asian American. Um, there's a pretty big account on Twitter named called Derek Guy. It's called Die Fat. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. He's actually you really should really account. get into this. This is what got me interested. Your interaction, your your tweet. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we, we do need I to get to his, that. We absolutely do because that was a fascinating thing to watch. Um, that was a fascinating thing, and Teen's reaction to it was also fascinating. So yeah, look, yeah. look I, I am more hostile on Twitter than I am on. Well, sometimes I can be hostile <laughs> on this pod too, but I, I want reason discussion, and I don't really have a problem with Derek I, even though he blocked me. Um, but I would say that I've you know there are things that he said that both are very illuminating and also undercut um, his point. His point is that you simply can't make clothes at this level without, you know, just really, really bad levels of like worker abuse. And he said yeah. that we should abandon, you know, shine should be destroyed or abandoned yeah. because there's no way that you can produce clothes at that price point right. without basically killing your workers in suicide net factories, which is a whole other fucking thing that we, we can talk about later. But taking what he says for a sec, I mean, there's a he posted a graph, which I think is really interesting. And um, I'll describe it to you. Um, it's a graph that compares Shine to Zara and H&M in terms of like different, different, um, the amount of actual selection. And Shine is, you know, if you look at dresses, pants, shoes, and T-shirts, uh, the total number of different articles is approaching 150,000, whereas Zara looks to be, it's so low, Zara and H&M are so low as to be almost negligible. It looks like they're about in the, maybe the two or 3,000 range, maybe. Yes, they're, uh, they're on the clothing right. side. Their business model is extreme innovation. So that, like, like John said, it is fast fashion on steroids. So fast fashion defined by brands like H and M, Zara, you know, Forever Twenty One, which practically look like heritage brands in comparison to this. They release <laughs> maybe like 10, 12 collections a year. They iterate over a period of six weeks. Some of it is ripped off from like you know couture, you know, high-end designers in Europe who only do two or three collections a year, uh, you know, and then that was considered blazing fast. Shine does iterations on, on a, in a period of days, if not hours. They are mo they monitor social media to see what sells, what doesn't sell. They, it, it just, things can go in and out of stock while you are surfing on the site. I'm not a customer, but, you know, I know just being a woman, I know, you know, I just, I've just seen how this works. It is a, it is an insanely sophisticated model. That's very, very responsive and in predicated on extreme high, um, um, throughput at the expense of quality. Well, hold on. Here's, here's my take on this. Now I don't have the facts. I'm positing a theory. I'm not saying I'm right. Mm -hmm. But this is what I, I look at this graph. Again, I mean, if you could see the graph in front of you, you know, we're not on video, so I can't show you. But just put, just think of Shine as, you know, 50x Azara or H&M in terms of number of different, you know, SKUs or whatever you want to call them in the retail world, right? Items. Now, the way I see this is Zara and H&M both are European brands. What you just said there, Jess, in terms of doing the research, you know, figuring out what styles or whatever. That was the brand's job. 
And the way the model worked for a long, <clears throat> worked and continues to work, and it's been this way for a long time, is that the Chinese textile factories and Southeast Asian and you know South Asian factories were basically just sort of like back end, you know, processors of orders. Exactly. Specs came in for designs, and they just they didn't care. They were just like, you just tell me what you want, and the number of articles and the quality level. And I will produce, and then and then we can write a contract, and I'll produce it for you. But your job is to figure out what you want, and then take the risk on the order, right? And I think what happened is that in China, let's take it as one of a few textile superpowers in terms of manufacturing, is if that's what your business model is, then this is actually, the flexibility was already built in. They already had exactly. to be able to produce any number of exactly. articles that mm -hmm. second that a Western yep. retailer said, okay, I want a crop top that looks like this, and I want a little thing here, and, and then boom, out the door. The, the, the flexibility and a, uh, to, to, to produce a huge number of different items to spec was already there because the workers had to get that good and that flexible exactly. in order to win those orders. And then what happened is Shine said, well, fuck it. Instead of letting Zara and H&M make all the choices, let's just show the full scale of what we can do built into our processes right now, and let's just blast that shit out onto the internet and see what happens. And that's what Shine did, I think. And then they started winning, and that's when we started hearing about slave labor practices and how Shine basically needs to be made illegal, and we need to sanction this company. That's, that, that's yeah. where I'm seeing this Yeah, it's story. not the labor, it's the manufacturers that are really special here uh, and you know yeah. and you know chinese labor is 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 expensive uh compared to the rest of asia yes so just we, to report just on what we what we know of course i know i know firsthand nothing right i just know what we what we can go off of uh what i can say is it looks like there are documented labor abuses and part of the controversy around that video that pr video that they put out with the the american influences they brought over to the the show the kind of the factory and I, I believe that was guangzhou um, the labor abuses are alleged in factories that are outside China. So Vietnam, Malaysia, yep. Indonesia, yep. places like that. So, um, and it's, it's not implausible. The, the sheer, the sheer volume and speed at which these items are produced. Uh, you know, there's, there's credibility to some of those claims. I'm fully willing to, I'm fully willing to believe that, um, the more the more credible the more credible i guess concern about a, an operation of this size is its environmental impact right like this it's that very obvious yeah i'm yeah. sorry the faster oh, you, you know that that's the one that's that's more more credible uh, more credible right. worry the labor right, one we can faster, just see that we can see product, the sheer yeah. we the can see the sheer around, volume of material that they that they produce that's that right. is yeah, people so are presuming a sort of oddest model of production on this. You know, you you have this idea of like the New York textile factories from the turn of the century. That is not how it works. When you have this super fast turnaround, small a certain batch of products, and you have to be innovative, you have to sort of uh, flip it around really, really quick, right? Uh, you you have to keep turning it around, and that's just not the sort of uh, setup uh, or conditions for your kind of, you know, the Western imagination of your, your, your sweatshop or even stuff that you can just contract out to households, for example. There was a lot of that in, in China, uh, you know, mm -hmm. 10, 20 years ago. I, I don't know about now. I think a lot less. 
because that's fairly unsophisticated type of uh, production. Um, yeah. I wanted but to pop on Dean's oh, oh, point go ahead, go about, ahead, about ahead, these, these manufacturers, right? Um, I come at this from, from experience in, in Malaysia with the tech industry. So I used to sort of advise the uh, work in the Ministry of Education on the entire sort of IT system and had a very good look at the uh, IT ecosystem around the production of you know, laptops, uh, projectors, you name it. And a lot of this stuff was going, even back then, this was like mid-early 2000s, so much of that stuff was produced uh, in factories in Taiwan, in South China, and so on. And these guys would, you know, you could tell them whatever you want, and they'll build it, right? And then you realize after a while, say, laptop manufacturing at that time, they literally would then come up. They don't wait for your specs from HP or whatever. They come up with their menu. Hey, what do you want? I've got this one, this one, this one, right? Already pre-designed. You just slap your brand onto it, Okay. It's that degree. They don't. They, they don't have to wait around for you uh, to 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 sort of uh, give them the specs. They were already innovating. Uh, people can tell you about you know uh, mobile phones. Uh, you know your uh, what is it? These uh, media players. Uh, what used to be called the I, the iPod. Uh, we had this stuff like that was coming yeah, out of Taiwan. Yeah, there's Hong Kong. Yeah, they were, they had very, these very very famous uh, stories that come out of uh, the relationship between uh, Apple, the production of the iPhone and the iPod in China. Um, I mean, there's it's a it's a famous. You story think it came from California, for- right? They are, they made stuff like this. I I I, I saw tablets yeah, way Jones before anybody credited- talked about tablets. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, you know just traveling. Yeah, they were offering to it to the Ministry of Education. Okay, here we made this tablet. You want this? You want that? Uh, we can slap anything onto it. Mm-hmm. So um, it says something. It was about the kind of capitalism uh, you, you, you saw, and, and Shine is the front end for that. I want to talk about this. Uh, you know, there's this idea that that, that capitalism works in a certain way, or these businesses, uh, these uh, production networks, or these uh, supply chains work in a certain way. Uh, as if it was just the, the the theory is that you have this lead company or uh, an MNC or a transnational company, right? That organizes them all, and they're just there inert and waiting for the order. That's not what I saw. Okay, yeah, these guys are making stuff. They're coming up with all kinds of shit on their own, uh, Rube Goldberg type things, really weird, interesting stuff. And I think Shine or Timu, whatever, um, is a window into a lot of this kind of uh, stuff. You know, um, Teen wrote this piece and he talked about the, the Shanzai, the, uh, you know, the bandit uh, manufacturer. There, there's an element of that, you know. Um, there, there's no clear line between sort of the banditry, uh, counterf- counterfeiting, and then innovating, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but that ability to, uh, on a small scale, or relatively sort of entrepreneur-owned businesses, um, innovate. Um, this, this is what Shine and companies like that are front end for. And they'll try out all kinds of stuff. Um, and that's the difference from the model in the US where you have a giant concern like Amazon uh, was dominating it. And then as it began, you had these well-known brands, right? Uh, I think as, as you said, Jess, uh, the Chinese companies were habituating the American consumer to weird or 
or no-name brands, brands you just heard about yesterday, but then because they could gather reviews, people would buy them. And I, I, and, and that review system is there. Shine, Timu, Ali, you know, as well. So no, Amazon was the kind of R&D uh, cauldron for this kind of business model, slowly habituating the American consumer, as you, as you, right, uh, as you right. stated. Uh, I mean, you can see it in their sort of like, you know, it, it was an axiom in the business development world that if you wanted to sell to an American consumer, you absolutely had to do, you had to, you had to present a certain type of image. So things like you had to have uh, proper English, you could not afford yep. to have grammatical yep. mistakes or spelling mistakes, you know, your name had to be ev evocative and memorable. Uh, if you look at an Amazon storefront, you know, I can't, you know, these these storefronts just look like they, someone just banged a keyboard and then came up with the name. The, yep. it, some of the captions are illegible to an American um, you know, even the reviews can be terrible. Say the stitching is stitching is off or, you know, I ordered shorts and got, you know, underwear or something, but it was two ninety nine, So I'm going to stick with it. That was the important lesson that was that was picked up on. So, you know, there was an element to the, the, the this little controversy, this little mini controversy that I found interesting, which is almost that people were uh, like defending shine, like, like, it's a it's kind of an underdog in this, right? Uh, I'm sure you guys have picked up on this too. Kind of a lot of people, and I understand the the constraints of social media. You you end up feeling defensive quite a bit, and if you feel defensive, you're going to go a little bit a little bit overboard, and that project projects a certain image, and you know it's a mess. Um, no, but just I'm not look. I'm not saying that I wasn't trying to suggest that Shine doesn't engage in labor exploitation, like all manufacturers engage in labor exploitation. I'm not saying that, you know, Shine has figured out a way to do this where, uh, you know, the machines are making the clothes automatically and, you know, everyone's a George Jesson push, pushing buttons. That's obviously not how it works. My point is that this was never brought up with other retailers that use the same system of production, except that they get to control the branding and front end of it. And it wasn't until Shine... Uh, threatened that that everyone suddenly you know online there was this concerted media effort online and in the media to and in and, and in mass media uh to suddenly shine a very bright light on the problems of manufacturing textiles but it's the same manufacturing that's done uh you know that's that's used to supply other brands and if you look at some of the stuff that Derek guy was posting i think it kind of leads leads oh, to I, this I, conclusion I remember that. yeah like so let me let me just read about let me just read two about points to that, to, though, I'm, I'm not saying that you're saying anything. I, I, I agree with you. I'm saying two things here. Uh, very simply, one, um, these abuses probably are happening, but Shine's business model has exposed the American consumer does not give a shit. So it's not a it's not a yeah, main yeah. no I, I don't care about it's it's not so step much the two. consumer no, yeah. no I I, I, yeah. I know step two is there's no real need to def, to be to have a like a moral position on Shine it's actually just a, just a a mere discussion of like brand positioning Shine was basically saying you know giving the middle finger to the traditional brand playbook why do I know xenophobia is real I know racism is real I think though in this particular in this very particular instance though shine made a very very calculated business decision to ignore everything else that brands have been told they need to do precisely to avoid accusations like this 
This is what I'm saying. Like, it's not about the Sinophobia. It's that Shine intentionally did not care. They had so many tools at their disposal to blunt these, to make it a little bit harder to make these allegations stick, to have it be plausible to the average. Hey, sorry, we had a, we had some, we had a dropout, but Jess, sorry, you were saying on that second point? Ah, oh, man, I was really on a roll too. Um, so just... <laughs> <laughs> so first is uh, just a, a strict bifurcation of you know con- the area of concern. I think the the full human rights concerns, you know, the slave labor that was a very that's a very elite um, business class kind of uh, hand wringing that got a little bit more press, a little bit of attention in the in the in the media space. Uh, the uh, this uh, the reality on the ground is most people don't care. Um, second is that this is this is uh, I know that sinophobia is real. I'm, I don't mean to discount that or discredit that. I think uh, my interest in this is primarily that uh, Shine made such a concerted made these calculated business moves, um, kind of flouting flouting that. There's no way a Chinese company doesn't know the kind of headwinds it faces in the American market. There's no way that they didn't know. There's no way that, uh, and there were so many things that they could have done if to have blunted this kind of controversy if they actually cared that much about it. Uh, like brands go to extreme lengths. Like Uniqlo is actually a great example of this to try to to try to build a brand that people would associate with positively and would come to defend. Right, so like a human rights accusation. But then why would but why would Shine, but but why would Shine in, in, invite influencers and come open up its shop floor for people to see? I mean, I, I, I haven't seen is... Unigl- I haven't seen anyone do that other than Shine. they're the one company that um, ostensibly opened up its shop floor to sh- to show how the its manufacturing practices actually work, and then they're the ones that were punished most har- har- most harshly for that and it blew up in their face and i feel like the lesson learned is like yeah just keep it all a secret i mean don't show them how the sausage is made why would you do that yeah if i keep were it- a consultant for them i would have said no you, you're already in the, you're already in too deep on this every the people who know who you are already have an impression of you this is not going to change anything it was kind of cynical and very kind of it was very blatant actually i mean People picked up on it right away. They invited these. They invited influencers that were that were of marginalized identities. Um, people noticed right away these were like non-white women who did not fit the traditional mold of you know like standard attractiveness. Let's say that one would no- normally associate with like a clothing brand or influencers who were paid to promote a clothing brand here. And they were all brought in uh, to to kind of speak positively about this company. This was this was bad PR. This was a bad p- defensive PR move that was bound to actually fail because the because of their brand positioning to begin with. The thing that they traded on, you know, if they had raised their prices by 30%, if they had spent a little bit, you know, polished their 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 user but my point their user is that, experience but- but my I'm point saying, is like, for of- this one, they're they're actually exposing a deep hypocrisy here. They're exposing that the the American consumer does not care. It's not a big concern in the end. I don't agree. I think uh, I think American consumers do care. I don't think that. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that I do think that it matters that Shine is a company that is a brand that is located in China. And I'm not simply saying that this is we don't like Chinese people, right? We we don't like uh, you know squinty-eyed chinks, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the problem is that China happens to also be the base of manufacturing 
And it's when you have the folks in the back of the house that start to, you know, take what's made back there and sell it directly in the front of the house. That's when the people in the front of the house get real nasty. That's my point. And that's what I mean by sinophobia. It's not simple racism. It is, in fact, it's deeply tied to the fact that Shine is is a brand that is in the same country. And I think they probably are vertical at this point. It itself yes, owns a lot of its own You're upsetting own the global division of labor. Correct. We cannot have a company that makes its own shit. That's the problem. And here, look, a couple things. This is what I was about to read, Jess, from, from, Der- from Derek um, Guy, Derek Guy, Die, uh, Die Workwear. So he wrote a little bl- blurb about fast fashion, and it said, let's define it. Fast fashion is often misunderstood as cheap, mass-produced clothing, but that's not the whole picture. Many companies sell cheap mass-produced clothing but aren't fast fashion. For example, Hanes, Dickies, Carhartt, L.L. Bean, Land's End, and so on. Fast fashion isn't just cheap clothing. It's cheap and trendy clothing. The term fast has refers to how a company brings a product to market. So I think this is a more honest blurb that he's writing here. His problem, like he said... It's the fast fashion isn't just that it's cheap and mass produced, and therefore he has no objection to Western companies like Hanes, Dickies, Carhartt, LL Bean, and Lands End using cheap mass production. His problem is how a company brings a product to market. And I'm saying that when he says how a company brings a product to market, what I don't know, he I don't think he knows this is what he's saying, but I think what is actually being said here is that a company that makes cannot bring the product to market. It has to go through a brand. It has to go through a properly you know, vetted brand. It can't just be some fly-by-night maker of clothes. And that corresponds to something that someone, when I was tweeting about this, about Uniglo as a, as a counterexample, they said, well, Uniglo, you know, China just makes the clothing. Now, there were other things that were said in that tweet, but I just want to focus on just makes the clothing. You see what I'm saying? It is a it is a built what I'm trying to point out is that there is a built-in um devaluation of the actual making of a product as something that's menial and skillless. There's no human quality in making things anymore. It's pure drudgery. It's there's no human creativity. There's no joy in making things anymore. It's just brutality. And that's, I think, something that is on the liberal progressive to leftist end of the spectrum. It's not just, you know, you know, your, your typical Marxism where the laborers, laborers are, their work is exploited. It's that laborers themselves are not capable of like any other human. They, there's no humanity in their work. It's, you know, you see what I'm saying? I do. So yeah, late- you're pointing at uh, like David Graeber uh, talks about this quite a bit. The uh, the devaluation of actual productive labor. You know, it, it, it is bullshit jobs, right? The hallmark, you know, and it, to the point he makes yep. that you know a lot of elite labor in these these post industrial uh, rich societies. Um, the, one of the tendencies is to then look to, to for for people of. Uh, like highly paid salaried elite workers to then look down on the actual productive workers, despite uh, despite the act, despite some nagging uh, understanding that that is actually the the more useful category of labor. So you, generally, you're picking up on something real. 
and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not simply saying that yeah. that's the that's the important part of labor. I'm saying that there is a real making things is the basis of human creativity, and I think that when we say that laborers, like Chinese laborers, are just slave laborers, you are stripping them of your their humanity. You are not protecting them by saying that they're they're slaves. You're saying that they're menial, that they lack creativity, they lack they lack passion for their work. They're just abused animals, basically, right? And that court that there's fits a, very neatly into progressive politics. There's this um, class element. Court. You can call it race. It's, I mean, there's, there's it's racial, but um, the way Teen elucidates it, um, I start to see this sort of um, a class dimension to it, and it's the role of you know this same class actually that that's very threatened in America right now. Um, a kind of professional managerial class that gets to be the arbiter of of taste and that gets to define a, a brand. Um, you know, these are the symbolic manipulators, right? They don't touch stuff, they don't make things, uh, but they their taste or their their writing and 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 uh, their their discussion, right? Their their talk, right? Their work with symbols uh, is the final part of the chain and. They extract the greatest part of the value from 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 the whole process, and something like Shine and this kind of um, retail just takes it away from them. Um, people go in there and they look at the stuff themselves, and they, uh, you know, the punters, the people, the customers, uh, they they see this stuff. Uh, it looks cool to them. They are the arbiter of of, of taste here. So it, it isn't just Shine, um, and Jess made this great point about Shine not really branding, but they're putting stuff out there. And I don't know, but um, a consumer going through that also gets to pick and choose and 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 sort of define for herself, um, you know, the, the taste there. So you yeah, you're kind of disintermediating this this professional class. Yes, yeah. and there is no I way to actually criticize Shine or TikTok for that matter without mm-hmm. actually exposing a deep kind of seediness to the psyche of the American consumer to begin with. Like the like, it lends itself easily to conspiracy theories. You know, we've all we've all seen them. You know, the criticism of TikTok that you know the CCP is is uh, is is influencing the algorithm, so it it produces you know it shoves you know. Um, seedy, trashy elements and boosts that for the American audience. And, you know, if you see it, and, you know, really, you don't have to do that. You don't actually even have to do that. All you have to do is let the consumer, you know, select for themselves what they actually want and boost that. And that has the same effect. It's it's exposing some some kind of cultural, psychological, like I would even put a spiritual, you know, seediness to the heart of the American consumer. We're seeing the lowest common denominator, their market power at work here in a very raw, unmediated, unvarnished way. And I think part of the elite criticism of these companies is partly that, that these companies actually held up a mirror to the to where the money actually is in the country and not liking the character of it. And I why, and did, why I, does it have to I'm be not, seedy though? Why is it more seedy than the you know people aspiring to brands? And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm not talking about CD. The, the populism. I do not have any problem with. Right. That this is this is this is the market at work. This is if you if you claim to, you know, if you claim to like capitalism, then you should have no problem with the market making a decision for itself. Uh, what I what I'm only commenting on is the kind of elite criticism of this. Uh, and I will, you know, I'll be open with you. Like, like if I see Shine, if I go to Shine's site, I look through their clothes. I'm not liking what I'm seeing. 
uh, there's a particular character and nature the kind of goods that they are provide that they yeah, yeah. that they are selling and this is what is and you know i'm not saying that this is it's easy to if you if you politicize if you are a particular political bent and this is actually where sinophobia comes in this is where it primes people to fall into political traps like this like oh the ccp wants to turn all of our women into cheap um you know, cheap, oh, cheap oh, women yeah. who dress like hookers yeah. or something or TikTok. They're trying to corrupt the minds of our youth with uh, with trashy content. No, this is simply all, you don't even have to do that. Like, let's say that's this even is just what the beginning, though. Wanted. Right. It's, yeah. it's cheaper stuff. And, and because you're sending stuff. stuff from China, it has to mm-hmm. be cheaper stuff. Um, but this is just the beginning. What about other things coming through without brands? I'm just referring to uh, I'm drawing from experience. I mean, I'm old enough to have sort of grown up in Malaysia in um, sort of with an experience of markets and of capitalism, so to speak, of, of markets, which were, and many of them literal markets, like night markets and so on, where stuff was not branded, where you bought things uh, based on price and how it looked like and so on, but, um, and you didn't have this intermediation of, of brands uh, to this extent, actually not at all. So, you know, my mother would go to a tailor, for example, right, back then you, and uh, okay, so you have this thing made to order, or you'd buy something from the night market, and it's sort of cheap. But then you could you could feel it uh, and 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 see, okay, this is good enough for, for what I want. You know, this shine stuff, uh, Timu, for example. Yeah, the stuff they're they're sort of selling now is cheap, and you get the sense um, I'm just going to take a risk on it. It's just a few bucks, uh, and I can also return it. Not no return. I they'll they'll give you a refund without any any issue. Yeah, it doesn't the work risk out. to the it's consumer no yes. is yes. low. It's really low. And that's a mm-hmm. big part of it. But that's just the beginning. Uh, if the supply chain was uh, sort of strong, if the logistics were stronger, or if you were in China, I could see other categories sort of go this way. An enormous kind of brand disintermediation uh, uh, going on. Is that is that the real offense? Let me let me let me offer a let me offer a framing of what uh, an alternative framing of what's actually going on here. Mm -hmm. What if Shine is not a brand, and what's going on is to an extent that you know the under influencer culture, people individuals are meant to brand themselves now, and I think that what might be going on, Jess, if, if you go to Shine, I find it overwhelming in its selection that I don't, I don't enjoy flipping through uh websites you know online retailers chaotic. with such with yep. such huge amounts of selection but guess what that's what brands do brands are the ones you know with buyers and the ones that flip through as john said pre-made items and curate the items out of you know the multitudes of items that the producer can make and has made i select the ones that bring about a certain kind of mystique, a certain kind of emotion, a certain kind of feeling, and I brand it. And but the service that I provide as a brand is going through all that crap. And for a long it's time... It's logis- shipping and logistics. Yeah, you're, you're correct. But I think um, now that we have a culture where individuals, they want to do that. They want to flip through the bins and figure mm-hmm. out what's my personal brand. This is like micro branding at an individual level. And shine to me is not, oh, I'm a shine person. I'm not an H&M person. I'm a shine person. I'm not a Zara person. No, no, no. Shine to me is a no brand. For example, yeah, people who. Yeah, it's like thrifting. Yeah, this, like yeah. thrifting. Yeah. 
Well, that's, actually, that's what I, mean, I think. It's literally going through bins. It's actually it's it's funny enough. It's actually importing like nineties like nineties Asian retail culture to the American consumer, which yep. I had always learned as being imp- fundamentally impossible. Like like uh, like the retail experience in Asia is so vastly different than what you are exactly. trying to expect in America. Yep. Like in Korea, yep. um, I mean, there is I don't even like marketplace would be the loosest analogy, but it's not what you would expect if, in English. Like in Korea, it'd be like the shijangs massive massive chaotic stretches of land yeah it just overwhelming and it's in it's in the sheer quantity uh and depth the the lateral yes. like the, yes. the horizontal and vertical depth of the offerings at these marketplaces is exactly. it, it, coming in as a westerner overwhelming and right the sheer the amount consumer. of wholesale activity that's going on right yeah. like sometimes so you go to a place is, and is like, Moon, for example we're yep. not we're gonna not we're gonna sell you clothing by the pound like you gotta put in an order you can't just buy an article you know like mm-hmm. you know you're like so oh flouts, again this is a wholesale market okay and turns out you know this is this might be a sign of the diminishing power of the american you know the like uh americans just don't have the kind of this doesn't have the kind of cash to throw around anymore or every or it turns out everyone just loved a good deal and everyone is 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 ready to stop paying the excess surplus value for the the power of a brand well that's where um, i'm disagreeing with you where i'm saying i don't think it's just price i think it's the it's like i don't think costco is necessarily just price either i think people are you know i think there's a significant amount of resentment at the the degree to which brands dictates our personal style and our choices and people want to make choices for themselves and when you are exposed to the kinds of consumer choices that you can have uh in asia which is now being transmitted to us online exactly i think it really changes people's attitude around branding i don't think it's just simply price and i think this brings to mind i want to shift gears just for a sec here this brings to mind when the iphone first became you know uh, this huge mass product and it was very awkward because you know the whole thing was built you know the entire supply chain for this thing was in China and Tim Cook who was the chief operating officer at that time was you know always in China managing the supply chain with Foxconn and you know and all the suppliers there Jess you remember this and I pointed this out to you uh, quite a few times this very interesting article in the New York Times that 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 um, recounted a, a very uh, Lumen, uh, like a very, like a VIP dinner that took place when Obama was president. And he sat next to Steve Jobs in Silicon Valley. All the Silicon Valley, you know, tech bigwigs had hosted this dinner for Obama. And Obama said to Steve Jobs, Look, you tell me what you need for me as the president. What do you need to bring those jobs, making the iPhones, things like that? How do we bring those jobs back to the United States? Answer from Steve Jobs those jobs are not coming back. It's not simply a matter of price. It's not simply a matter of labor cost because he's like, look, ultimately, if you break down the cost of the iPhone, labor cost is a relatively small input to the total cost. So, you know, you could pay your workers three times more, which is what you have to pay in America, let's say. But that's not going to really impact the total cost of the phone. The problem is that we don't have the workforce in America to do the things that they're doing in China. Meaning, and and he didn't mean like workers that are going to you know be willing to work under a whip and get paid wasn't shit. Even that's, price. Not, yeah. that's not what his point wage. was. He said skill. We're not producing yeah. the engineering skill that's required. And the famous thing, of course, was after they the, had the, the whole glass. supply chain. Yes, yeah. exactly. They they flipped the entire production 
line over basically overnight to go from plastic screens to glass screens on the eve of product launch. And all of the Apple managers in California were like, you're insane. Steve Jobs is insane. And they did it. And I think that really changed their attitude about whether the iPhone could ever be made in America. And he told Obama, it's not going to happen. So stop asking. It, it, like, we're, you're not just going to pass a few laws and that's going to happen. And it's been proven. Foxconn tried to move a fairly low-tech um, LCD manufacturing plant to Wisconsin in what was a highly publicized deal under Trump. That it never got off the ground. They couldn't. They couldn't make it. I don't think they ever produced a single panel, despite billions in tax, you know, uh, tax benefits to to Fox. Now the most notable is uh, there were there were twenty employees that were paid something like three hundred thousand dollars U.S. a year, and uh, their literal job description was watching Netflix in the office. Right. Right. That was it. Yeah, that's a famous that's a famous story that gets passed. And in fact, so much time has passed that we're even losing the language to properly describe the scale of the uh, the deindustrialization of America. Like when he's talking about skilled labor, like, um, and this is something that I've pointed out a few times too. Like engineering in the U.S. is a highly paid luxury profession. It's considered elite. Uh, if that makes that doesn't make that much sense in Asia. Like I graduate with mechanical engineering degree. I work as a I work as a program. That's considered an elite job here. It's paid very handsomely. There aren't very many uh, relative to demand. Even uh, what is significantly lacking is a entire middle tier of engineering that sits above, say, a technician, but below like but below like the true like uh, the true uh, the true the cl- the class of engineering that we think of here is like at the very tip top or at the very bottom of the labor chain. There's actually a, an, a huge ecosystem of middle tier engineers that we have completely lost. And that is the class of engineer that stepped yeah. in to turn around uh, Apple's production line and materials development two months before the launch of the iPhone. That's that's the kind of engineering that I'm talking about. Like I would have, I I do not have any training in mass production. I don't have any training in like in 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 in, um, in any of the stuff. Um, neither does anybody else in the country. Honestly, nobody has nobody has a degree and knows how to manage a factory line. Nobody knows how to do that middle class middle tier of engineering that's actually geared towards you know speeding produ- making sure production Industrial happens on time yep. and under under budget on time and to spec i was trained I, entirely on speculative one offs extreme right. like high end you know like it like you know uh blue sky technology stuff and i have very little experience with actually like if i'm stuck in a factory and i need to ship 10,000 units of th- something by friday i have no idea where to even begin um, and that's what we're talking about here. And this is the kind of labor force, the kind of economic and social cap- human capital that China has built up um, in the in the decades since we let that go, basically, and never built up. And, so and, I mean, uh, that's I mean, all, all that yes, and that, but there's a, a great, a fascinating part of this discussion, and Teen sort of has begun to bring it out, is that um, and to use an ugly word. It's about not just about this producer sort of agency, but the on the consumer side, people do a lot more work in Asia. Um, they don't sit back. This is you know you go to Dongdaemun Market or you go you 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 end up somewhere in Shenzhen and you're, you're buying stuff. Um, there there's a lot more presumed of you, or there's a lot more uh, 
interest. It's just like getting on, on, on Shine. It may look bewildering, but some people go for it. And in Asia, um, the, the experience of uh, the market, so to speak, of, of capitalism is very much more like that. The consumer, uh, a lot of the, especially the younger consumers, are not as um, inert, are not as passive. Um, and, and that too is part of the, the, the end of, of, of brands there. I'll give you another example. You know, these, uh, there's this, there was this phenomenon of kids flying to Korea, right? Uh, on, on low cost budget uh, airlines, right? One of which my, my friend of mine set up, right? Uh, AirAsia, example. And, you know, they'd come back with bags of stuff and then they'd sell it on Facebook or whatever it was. Um, what, how did they know what to get? How did they know what was hot? Uh, why were certain things, well, not because of particular brands, it's because of stuff they'd seen on, 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 on TV, right? Uh, Korean seri- uh, cereals at, at that time. It could be something else. Uh, people go to Indonesia to do this. Uh, you know, I know people who go to Guang- uh, Guangzhou, right? And uh, buy stuff. And, and do this. So there is a lot of agency um, on the retail consumer and uh, not just the producer level, but on the consumer side and the retail side and the trading side. That's a characteristic of markets and of capitalism, if you will. I don't think capitalism is quite the word for it uh, in, in, in East Asia, um, that people here don't have such a sense of, but they're getting beginning to get a sense of it with this disintermediation and uh, the ability of companies like Shine, Timo, and others uh, to bring stuff in really, really cheap. It's still through one portal. You still can't do it yourself. You're still sitting in the U.S. clicking. Um, but in Southeast Asia, uh, in anything related to the Chinese market, there's a heck of a lot more agency uh, and creativity. And I say oh, not yes, just on absolutely. the demand side. I know what you mean. I mean, the let me, let, sorry, yes. let's, um, this is a really good discussion. We're about an hour in. Let, I, there's still a lot to discuss. If you guys are up for it, I think maybe this might be a good place to end the free portion. And do you want to keep going? And we could kind of do this as a sort of put put it into like a bonus time for, for further uh, mm-hmm. talk. Right I, mean, I, have, I have time. Okay. Uh, All right. John, so are, you, are you okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's, right. let's keep, let's keep this. This is, uh, this is good. This is the end of part one of this podcast. We're going to do parts two and maybe parts three because this ended up being a pretty long discussion on the Patreon feed. If you want to access and support us on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash planning